0: Shoes? What's the matter, Morty? World, the string. My World, the string. Break down. My name is Chelsea Fairless, and I'm Lauren Garoni, and welcome to Every Outfit on Cruella and other fashion designer films. In watching the latest uh, prequel reboot of 100 Origin (laughs) Story, (laughs) it made Chelsea and I think about the other fashion design plot-based films that we love. So we thought we'd do a whole episode about it. I'm excited. This is this is new and different for us. And also one of us will be on vacation next week.
1: so <laughs> One of us will be in the lovely seaside town, Provincetown, Massachusetts.
0: Not I. Yeah, <laughs> spoiler alert, it's not Lauren. <laughs> you know, we didn't want to do just best fashion films, even though that's an easier title, because there's so many different ways to qualify it, right? There are films that have incredible costumes that aren't about fashion or style. There are you know films that have costumes by actual fashion designers there are films about models and then there are films with models in them so i can see films as-
1: about photographers <laughs> yeah we're doing we're doing films about fashion designers the fashion industry and
0: how it makes you a crazy fucking person yeah
1: it does apparently That's what I've learned from this. Shall we start with Cruella? Sure. For those of you who haven't seen Cruella, I have written a brief plot description for you.
0: For those who don't want to spend $29 on Disney Plus Premier (laughs) Access or go to a theater. Exactly. We've got your hookup.
1: So Cruella is a film about a scrappy little orphan played by Maddie Ziegler as Sia. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, not really. Who dreams of becoming a fashion designer. She ultimately lands a job working for the House of Baroness, but quickly learns that her boss killed her mother, which inspires her to exact revenge by becoming an even more successful fashion designer in the vein of Vivian Westwood and Alexander McQueen. I also would like to note that
0: no CGI Dalmatians were harmed (laughs) during the making of this film. The film was directed by Craig Gillespie, who directed I, Tanya, which seems like a random choice, but he also did Disney films called Million Dollar Arm and The Finest Hours. I thought it was important to note that it was written by Dana Fox, who's like a rom-com queen. She did How to Be Single, Isn't It Romantic? And then also, why I wanted to talk about the screenwriters is, as I was watching Cruella, I was like, wow, this really feels like the favorite, and it's because the other credited screenwriter is Tony McNamara, who wrote The Favorite. Ooh, The Favorite is so good. And Hulu's The Great, which if you have not watched it, chef's kiss. I have not seen that yet. And the costumes are by Jenny Beaven, who has been nominated for Best Costume Oscar 10 times and won twice for A Room with a View and Mad Max Fury Road. I think she's got a third one with her name on it. Yeah, because apparently Cruella
1: was the biggest budget that she's ever had, which is crazy, but which you can totally see. The costumes in this movie are the most insane, elaborate, over-the-top things you can imagine.
0: And here, because this film has so many needle drops, I was imagining Alan Horn, who's the studio head for Disney, just like screaming in his office of like, The Rolling Stones? Really? Uh, (laughs) Yeah, the, the music I did not love. The music
1: was so on the nose. They played I Wanna Be Your Dog during Cruella's first gorilla fashion show, which I was kind of sad that they didn't actually get Iggy Pop to do it, but do like a reverse Irishman on him where he like
0: aged down to where how he actually looked oh, they, in the 70s. <laughs> a de-aged Iggy Pop, that's brilliant. I mean, Iggy Pop will be in any film. He was in The Crow. <laughs> Uh, So my first question is, is she supposed to be Vivian Westwood?
1: Yeah, she's
0: definitely a designer in the vein of Vivian
1: Westwood and John Galliano, meaning that deconstruction is central to her practice. She's deconstructing traditional garments like military
0: jackets and ball gowns and shit for those who don't know vivian westwood got her start making teddy boy clothing with her partner malcolm mclaren in 1971 they had a store called let it rock at 430 kings road and then further along in the 70s she got more interested in what we now understand as the punk aesthetic renaming the shop too fast to live too young to die westwood she renamed that store like
1: 500 times
0: She She was like the original bitch who like changes their Instagram handle like every day. Yeah, they started redesigning shirts with more provocative messages and symbols. I can't wait for Gen Z, who is obsessed with that Vivian Westwood necklace, to realize that their loved ones made sweatshirts with swastikas on them. Which isn't to
1: say that she is politically affiliated with Nazis. That I think was just like a punk... Yeah. At the time, however distasteful.
0: Yes. How Vivian Westwood, I think, really became synonymous with the punk movement is because her partner, uh, Malcolm McLaren, would go on to manage the Sex Pistols, who then wore Vivian Westwood clothing. And then gradually she got more high fashion, and that's
1: the sort of over-the-top, expensive couture stuff that is really what informed the costumes in Cruella, I think, the most.
0: Yeah, but I also felt that... You know, especially that look when she gets up on the cab and she's got that like military epaulet with the ball gown, it reminded me a lot of the Vivian Westwood 1981 Pirates collection which was then on Adamant all throughout the 80s. Yeah, I mean that's not an accident. Like it's very clear like what the references were
1: for various garments in this film and we also saw a lot of stuff that was very Galliano. We even got Galliano hobo chic 2000
0: Dior couture collection references in this which was fun which isn't the first time that that has been referenced in a film oddly enough so for those who don't know the Dior 2000 couture collection was Galliano said that it was inspired by him running along the Seine and seeing homeless people and also tramp balls of the 1930s right yeah and that would if this is sounding familiar it was parodied in Zoolander with the dare leaked collection yeah and then it ultimately you know trickled down to to Carrie Bradshaw in
1: her famous <laughs> newsprint dress but i love seeing the reference for that here
0: for sure and i also felt that Emma Stone's posing again in that scene where she gets up on the on the cab is very specifically Galliano at the end of his shows when he would do the runway walk that aspect of her shows screamed that, but also it's like Cruella's whole
1: thing was holding these like guerrilla fashion shows, which was very much like, I mean, obviously Imitation of Christ came to mind first for me.
0: Yeah, we love Terra Subcops label Imitation of Christ, which came to prominence in the early 2000s. Well, okay, loved it at the time. I don't know how oh, much in retrospect that. it holds up. But what they would do is like their very first fashion show took place in an East Village funeral parlor and all the models were mourners walking around a casket, which I can't believe they didn't do that for the film, but maybe the sequel. Yeah. Wait, was that the show that Channing Tatum was in? No. Yeah, I was showing Chelsea photos from the collection. I think the the Imitation of Christ... So their whole thing were one guerrilla fashion shows, but two more kind of subversive runway shows and sort of taking the idea of what walking a fashion down a runway actually meant. And I think our favorite uh, collection that they did is the Fall Winter 2002, which takes place at Sotheby's, which, yes, is the one where Channing Tatum is a model. And (laughs) What I'm thinking of specifically, I think there's
1: one Imitation of Christ show where they held it like outside. It was during Paris during Paris Couture Week, and it was like outside a major venue where a major luxury brand was showing their show. You may also uh, remember this same scenario from Emily in Paris. If you got to the last episode,
0: Emily in Paris also held a guerrilla fashion show in an attempt to upstage another designer. Right, but does that come from cuz also Sophia Coppola in the 90s did was it x Girl or Milk Fed? Yeah, no, it was x Girl. So that wasn't Sophia Coppola, but um no, but she produced it cuz there's a clip on YouTube yeah, yeah, where yeah. she they're trying to she produced a an Ex Girl fashion show that took place in the streets of Soho as people were leaving a Marc Jacobs show. Yeah. So it's very clearly inspired
1: by that. I mean, there were, it was fun cuz there was a lot of things in Cruella that were very clearly inspired by real-life fashion things, what comes to mind the most for me is probably Cruella's masterpiece, I guess, which would be the gown that she made from butterfly cocoons. You know what I'm talking about, right? I do,
0: no, but I'm like, wait, before they become butterflies, they're caterpillars? Yeah, or yeah. they're in their little houses. husk. yeah. it was very. It they're in was... their husks. <laughs> It was very Mothman prophecy. <laughs>
1: yeah, but that was kind of like a mishmash of like two McQueen things from the same show, which was the Voss show, which was the one where there was like a giant box in the middle of the, the runway that the models were walking around. And then at the end of the show, the walls of the box came down and there was like this naked woman with very like sinister breathing apparatuses strapped to her face. And then all of these like butterflies and moths came out. Like it wasn't as dramatic as... Depicted in Cruella, but well, it wasn't that vibe. Well, because, you know, in Cruella, it's CGI butterflies. CGI butterflies. You know, and also McQueen like made in that same collection was making a lot of, you know, he'd do like a a corset out of like muscle shells or like a gown out of shells and bones and stuff. So it felt very much like that vibe.
0: Of all the, the very deep kind of fashion cut references that were made in the film, I'm surprised that they didn't try to mimic maybe Alexander McQueen's most famous runway moments and maybe the most famous runway moment ever, which is Shalom Harlow in the tulle dress that gets spray painted by robots at the end of the spring-summer 1999 collection. Yeah, it's true. That does that does seem like something Cruella would do. I mean, I get that it's the 70s, but you could have, you know, her two little henchmen throwing paint on her or something. Again, maybe for the sequel, of which there will be. They just announced there will be a sequel. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it going to be 102 Dalmatians <laughs> again? I never saw the 1996 live action Oh, really? Film. It's good.
1: I mean, I, w- I wanted to revisit it before recording this episode, but I didn't get around to it. Glenn Close was a fashion designer in that as well. Whereas in, you know, the original animated Disney film, Cruella was, I believe, the wife of like a furrier. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. So that's why she had all the fur coats and was that vibe. But obviously she wanted the rarest fur coat, which was Dalmatian Puppy.
0: Who are evidently in this film complete fucking psychopaths? <laughs> so we shout out to the CGI dogs. I
1: loved it. I mean, although it does make you miss the days when like animals could just like act, you know? <laughs> like, can you imagine if Toto from The Wizard of Oz was CGI or like Sandy from Annie was CGI? It's just, it's something's lost. It's not the same.
0: Is it weird that my mind went to Airbud? <laughs> so uh, (laughs) no chelsea spoiled it at the at the top i was in a zoom the other day and i I didn't think that the dogs killing uh cruella's mom or estella as she is called cruella is her other persona that she shifts into like she's Mm -hmm. got dissociative identity disorder whatever she does (laughs) no but i was like anyway can we talk about how the the dogs kill her mom and everyone was like spoiler alert i'm like is it? One? You, It's not a spoiler alert if it happens in the first 10 minutes of the film. I'm sorry. <laughs> and here's a true spoiler. That wasn't her mom. Guess what? Emma Thompson is Emma Stone's mother.
1: <laughs> and Emma Thompson plays the Baroness, which is the, I guess, like the biggest fashion designer in London. She's like very much a Charles James, Christian Dior type designer, whereas again Cruella who's kind of like a little past her prime and then Cruella is sort of coming in and and disrupting the fashion world but she looked amazing like Emma Thompson has never looked cooler in movies she looked amazing in that other movie that came out really recently that late night one with Mindy Kaling oh yeah she looked super hot and in this one she looks like very I love the hair I love the hair almost even more than the clothes.
0: Well, I couldn't help but wonder <laughs> uh, once I saw that the guy who wrote the favorite wrote this script as well, they had to have gone to Olivia Coleman first, right? I don't know. I think I-, I really liked I really liked her in this. So what did you think of the plot vis-a-vis the 1996 version?
1: I can't remember the 1996 version. I, I watched it when I was a child. I re- I know that the 1996 version looks a lot better. That's also just my personal taste because I really dislike CGI in the way that it looks visually. It, it's really, really hard for me. And for that reason, I think that the Glenn Close one is Superior. more fab. Yeah, for sure. Well, also, the- But I did enjoy this movie. I enjoyed it more than I expected to.
0: Yeah, I suppose this film is best going in with lowered expectations because I felt the I felt the same way. But they do defang her as well, which is she does like dogs and she doesn't kill the Dal- Dalmatians. Again, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, I guess lower the volume for about 10 seconds. They do a fake out where uh, one of the models is wearing a coat. At one point, they steal uh, Emma Thompson's Dalmatians and Emma Thompson sees her gorilla fashion show and there is one coat that's white that has little black dots and she's like oh my god she's killed my dogs <laughs> but i mean that would be punk <laughs> that's what i'm but she does it; it's a fake out the dogs are alive yeah there's no animal
1: cruelty but the the fun or the hilarious thing about this is that like When it's implied that she may have killed the dogs, like everyone's reaction is like, oh my God, like fur, like gross. Whereas like it's fully in the 70s. Like no one cares. Like everyone's wearing fur. No, it's a very- I get it's different when it's Dalmatians, but they weren't even puppies. They were full grown dogs. And mean ones at that. They weren't even real. They were CGI. Ooh, you know the superior dog? The chihuahua that was like a con artist? (gasps) Give that its own Disney plus-
0: series i'll watch it yeah they had little scammer dogs that was the best part of the film but it doesn't make any sense if she has dog friends that she would then want to kill other dogs as two people that did not enjoy dogs growing up and now have dogs and love them it's like you wouldn't yeah you wouldn't want to kill someone else's dog anyway i love that they made a choice of like we're not doing fur in this film however she will wear all of the leather
1: yeah It was funny watching Cruella because I was looking at it and while the costumes and the hair and the makeup, everything, every aspect of it was exceptionally done, I was like, this does seem a little tired. And I realized, I'm like, oh, it's because we've had Moira Rose. Yeah. We've had Daphne Guinness. And we've had Sia, who, you know, has worn literally every
0: wig in that film already. Like, I feel like they just got Sia's wig maker to like... Right, you're talking about divas who, who enjoy a black and white palette. Yeah, it's a very specific look. And that's Cruella's look, you know, the Moira Rose. It's interesting. I've seen a lot of articles written about this, of how the fashion industry is yet again the villain. But I didn't feel like fashion was the villain of this film I mean I guess it's it's all this idea that at one point Emma Thompson goes you have to have a killer instinct I'm doing a terrible British accent sorry guys awful but the whole thing is like Emma Thompson you think is like talking about girl boss energy but really she means uh, sometimes you got to kill people to be in this (laughs) business what (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't really so much a critique of the fashion world, especially because Cruella's
1: ambition wasn't to, like, I don't know, create, like, a more healthy work environment at the
0: atelier. It was just to be more famous and more successful. Vanessa Friedman wrote an article in the New York Times about this, and it it had this tone of, like, why can't they show the good sides of the fashion industry? And it's like, no, it's not a great industry. I mean, for a worker. Well, I th- look, I... We love the end
1: result of it. No, I mean, I think the industry gets a bad rep. I mean, yes, there are a lot of moral shortcomings in the fashion industry, but that's true of so many industries. I think anyone that's ever worked in the industry knows that there are a lot of people that are amazing and like people you would qualify as quote unquote real people,
0: And then, of course, there's also the people that are the reasons why these stereotypes about the industry exist. And then there are the people who want to kill Dalmatians to make coats out of them. And they're in, you know, they're all the way over there. I just feel like from a writing standpoint,
1: making a character, if you want to say that your character is narcissistic or ruthless or obsessive, like just making them a fashion designer is such like a cheap and quick way to convey that. So I think that that's part of the reason why people go to it. Although obviously this fashion is kind of built into this movie.
0: Yeah, if this is the only way that we get excellent costumes and production design, then I'm here for it. So, yeah, watch Cruella. (laughs) What you can wait though
1: until it's not $29.99, it's not like urgent.
0: So next up, we have Mahogany from 1975. Diana Ross plays Tracy, a shop girl putting herself through fashion night school, question mark, who takes a slight digression into becoming the world's biggest model thanks to a run-in with a deranged homosexual photographer played by Anthony Perkins. Rebranded as Mahogany, her meteoric rise keeps running afoul with the patriarchy, whether it's her social justice warrior pseudo-boyfriend played by Billy D. Williams, who just wants her to give up all of her dreams to be his side piece 24-7, or... <laughs> or, per- <laughs> or Perkins who would literally rather die than see her become a fashion designer or the- her weird old Italian benefactor who definitely <sighs> wants sex in exchange for funding her very problematic, culturally inappropriate fashion But collection. he's also,
1: like, chill. Like, he's pretty <laughs> chill for, like, a daddy that requires you
0: to fuck him even though you're not attracted to him at all. <laughs> She's like, uh, maybe not. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> or I think our laughter talked over this line, but for funding her very problematic, culturally inappropriate fashion collection.
1: Yeah, so Mahogany opens with a lavish fashion show, which is a bit different for this kind of movie because they usually like build up to the fashion show. But this starts with the fashion show right out of the gate. And it's, the vibe of it is, I don't want to, I don't know, like kabuki futurism, I guess. It is very, very culturally insensitive. I mean, Diet Prada would be canceling
0: Mahogany in a heartbeat. So the credited director of this film is Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown Records, and that's because he fired Tony Richardson midway through the production because he, quote, did not feel Richardson was capturing the feeling of, of blackness necessary to the story of a girl from the Chicago ghetto who achieved success as an international fashion model and designer. He didn't
1: go on to direct more movies, did he? Was this just
0: like a one-off?
1: Can you imagine?
0: Uh, Barry Gordy? No, I think I think this is maybe it. This is IMDb pro speaking. There's a lot of <laughs> uh, questionable credits because the only listed costume designer is Diana Ross, who only designed some of the fashion show costumes. But those are like Bob Mackie costumes, correct? Well, yeah, Bob Mackie. I don't know what's Mackie, what's the costume
1: designer, what's Diana Ross. I can't find I, any credit for There's not that much designer. information yeah. about this. And also, you can't even like watch this movie. You can watch it on YouTube or you can watch it on Vimeo, but it's not available. There's not a high quality version of it available anywhere, which is insane because I think it is just such an important and influential film, even though at the time it was critically panned. It wasn't glitter level critically panned, but it wasn't successful. And Diana Ross at the time had been... Wow, I'm turning into IMDb Pro over here. Uh, Diana Ross had been coming off the success of Lady Sings the Blues, which was her first movie where she also starred opposite Billy D. Williams. And that was like a very highbrow thing for her. She got an Oscar nomination. And then this, her second movie, totally flopped. Everyone was like, oh, it's embarrassing. It's a soap opera. It's kind of like what I imagine would happen to Lady Gaga if this House of Gucci movie is a failure. Mm-hmm. You bite your tongue. <laughs> it would be, but it's that. It's right. like that career equivalent. Although, unlike, say, a glitter, one thing that was very successful about this film, uh, apart from his, its camp value and its its lasting relevance
0: in the uh, gay men of a certain age community. It, and it's an often referenced fashion film among designers and the movie community in general.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great movie. But the breakout hit of it was the song which was the also which was sung by Diana ross of course it's called uh the theme from mahogany do you know where you're going to it is
0: played constantly throughout this film it does a thing that my other favorite film that was released in the 70s the long goodbye does where the theme is the theme that plays as a score but then wherever she is it's playing so she works as a shop girl in the department store and there's like a muzak version yeah. of it it's no, I love it.
1: Well, it's also kind of like the the theme to Valley of the Dolls where it just like pops in just like constant. It's like you're hit over the head with this song, but it's great and it was a it was a number 1 hit at the time. It was nominated for an Oscar like It was it, the shallow of its time. It was yeah. <laughs> it was the sh- Let's uh, let's drop a clip of it here. Do you know where you're going to? Do you like the things in life is shown?
0: I know we're making fun of the movie a bit, but what is crazy in rewatching the film now is how relevant it is to today. Everything that's featured in the film, diversity, representation, the fashion industry, the ethics of gentrification. That's Billy D. Williams' whole storyline is he's basically Obama. He's a community organizer in Chicago who's talking about how basically white gentrifiers are trying to take the neighborhood. What I was really taken by was his very nuanced critique
1: of the ethics of street casting because there is this scene in the film where they're doing a photo shoot. I don't even want to say it's in the projects because it's like in a condemned building. It's the south side of Chicago. Basically yeah. in the south side of Chicago and there's white models modeling expensive clothes. In this like
0: bombed out looking building basically. Yeah and
1: then the photographer pulls in some old black oh. woman from the neighborhood just to like add uh, quote unquote authenticity and Billy D. Williams is like how much is she getting paid compared to this white model? Like what's the, and Diana Ross is like, don't fuck with me. This is just my job, you know, whatever. <laughs> but it's just kind of amazing to, to see that in a film. And yeah, tragically, we are talking about all of the same things today, but I think because of this, I just think it's primed for a remake. And I think one of Lauren's greatest takes is that good movies shouldn't be remade It's movies that have great concepts that weren't properly executed that should be remade. You know, like Sliding Doors.
0: Yes, the other one that we often reference is Eyes of Laura Mars, which also came out in the 70s and has an interesting overlap with Mahogany, right? Because Mahogany is kind of this Barry Gordy vehicle for Diana Ross. And Eyes of Laura Mars was originally a vehicle that John Peters, the former hairstylist and boyfriend of Barbra Streisand, Set up for Barbra Streisand, and she ultimately fell out in the film. But Barbra Streisand did do the film. Still did the theme song. (laughs) Which I think also was a hit when the movie bombed. Yeah. Who would be in your Mahogany remake?
1: I am voting for Laura Harrier who she was a model. She is now an actress You may have seen her in Black Klansmen. She's the star of Hollywood, the only Ryan Murphy show that I haven't seen. And she
0: was in this month's Vogue. She's in an editorial with
1: Kendall Jenner. Yeah, because one thing that really bothers me is in films, when people are cast, actors are cast as models that could never plausibly be models.
0: Although we're not saying that about Diana Ross. Well, Diana
1: Ross could have very well plausibly been a model in the 1970s. Diana Ross doesn't align with today's specific beauty standards for modeling, but at that time, definitely. And Laura Harrier is that. She could do that. And she's a good actress. And I would love to see a mahogany reboot with her.
0: And a follower of our account. Yeah. Were you stunned at how thin Diana Ross looks in this film? Oh
1: my God. She's the thinnest person on earth. And every time I see this movie, I'm shocked by her thinness. Honestly, the only person that is even thinner than Diana Ross is Margaret Karstensen in The Bitter
0: Tears of Petra von Kant, which we're going to get into in a little bit, but it's crazy. For my mahogany remake, I was gonna say Tessa Thompson, but I just sort of mm. put Tessa Thompson in everything. Yeah. I guess we could say Zoe Kravitz as well, but the height thing. The height thing. But, but she, she could is be the model. Kate Moss,
1: you know? She could be the Kate Moss of... Um...
0: And Zoe Kravitz is
1: a model herself. Well, also, if you wanted to make it about modeling now, there are certainly models that are kind of... that are rising to prominence because they're
0: more like influencers than they are, or they're like nepotism models. Oh, the, for the remake of Mahogany and Eyes of Laura Mars, which is about a fashion photographer, and we almost put in this... But we uh, we'll do
1: another fashion photographer episode at some point.
0: Yeah, but that is the the avenue into these remakes is they have to be noddle influencers. Yeah, in a non annoying way. Should we get into the Anthony Perkins of it all in this film? Oh my god. So yeah, I think I think the descriptor "deranged
1: homosexual" is really pitch perfect. Yeah, you might know Anthony Perkins from a little art house film called Psycho. He was playing a closeted psychotic gay man. It's a very offensive depiction of homosexuality. Eh. Well, mostly
0: because there's a very weird scene that is feels like ten seconds long, where he's basically like, "You should fuck me because of everything I gave you, Diana Ross," and she's like, "No," and he's like, "Okay, yeah." Well, he tries
1: to fuck her, but then he can't get it up because he's a repressed homosexual. But, you know, Anthony Perkins himself was also possibly a repressed homosexual. He could be bisexual, but he was known to have had affairs with many, many men, including Rock Hudson, Tab Hunter, Paul Newman, Leonard Bernstein. Like this guy like fucked literally everyone. James Dean. That was on the list I saw. And then at some point, I think in his first... 40s or maybe his late 30s, it's like he finally fucked a woman, which was Victoria Principal because I guess they were in some movie together. And then shortly after that, he married Barry Berenson, who is Marissa Berenson's sister. She also modeled in like Halston shows back in the day and was a photographer. It's hard to say which one of them had a
0: more tragic death. Oh, it's Barry Berenson. So Anthony Perkins married... Barry Berenson. They had two children, Elvis and Osgood. And in 1992, Perkins passed away due to AIDS related symptoms. Causes related to AIDS. He died from AIDS. Yeah. And then Barry Berenson died in 9 11. She was in one of the planes that went into the Twin Towers, which in doing research and I was searching her name, you know, Google tells you like birth date, you know, date they were born, where they were born. Her death date is September 11, 2001, location, World Trade Center. Ugh anyway. God,
1: that's upsetting. Poor Marissa. I honestly, it's truly the worst thing ever.
0: Well, no, they're children. So Elvis is a musician and he released this album in 2007 that I loved called Ash Wednesday. Oh, really?
1: I didn't even know this. Yeah.
0: And it's called Ash Wednesday because his father died on a Tuesday and his mother died on a Tuesday and all he was left with on Wednesday was ashes. Oh God.
1: Sorry. This is like the dark (laughs) and sad portion of the podcast and we haven't even gotten
0: to Phantom Thread yet. I I know. To bring a little levy. Osgood, you probably have seen in the film Legally Blonde. He's the crazy tall guy in Legally Blonde and is now a horror film director. Mm,
1: Love that for him. This was a sad digression.
0: But we would recommend mahogany. Mahogany
1: is so good. Watch mahogany. I mean, honestly, find the YouTube link. The costumes are stunning. There's a really incredible montage, which is basically chronicling like how she's becomes a supermodel or is you know given a makeover. There's all these like fake shoots in it. One of which she's wearing a spandex outfit that's exactly like what Halston designed for the Martha Graham dancers in right. that we just saw in uh, the Halston. In, limited series yeah exactly that was fun um so yeah watch it it's it's on vimeo it's on youtube and you know what someone if there's any execs listening to this any hollywood execs let's make this remake happen We've got some ideas. We do.
0: Yes, we're two white women, but we have some <laughs> ideas for the re- remake of Mahogany. I mean,
1: even though we're both white, it'll still be far less problematic than this version of Mahogany. Oh,
0: we didn't even get to the the correlation in the real real fashion world, which is the Dior collection from 2007. That is...
1: Yeah, it doesn't... I don't think that Galeano was specifically referencing the Kabuki fashion show in Mahogany, but it's very much the same vibe and the same level of
0: over-the-topness. However, some of the best work Pat McGrath has ever done makeup-wise. Yeah. So it's a real toss-up. Yeah. So because this was such a bummer, we're going to shift to a lighter film, which is Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. (laughs) So the premise of this film is that there's a group of siblings, both
1: teens and younger kids, and their mom decides to go on a two-month vacation to Australia. She hires a babysitter to watch them, but the babysitter is like a crotchety old woman who dies in her sleep. But instead of calling the police and recording, reporting her death like normal people, they just kind of like callously dump her body by the side of the road because they don't want their mom to like find out that the babysitter's dead and, and come then like back and, and ruin their
0: summer. No, it's even crazier. Sorry to interrupt your description. They drop her at a funeral home with a note that says, nice old lady died of natural causes.
1: <laughs> it's so dark. But so they were like, yeah, the babysitter's dead. We're going to have the funnest summer ever. But the problem is that they don't have any money. So the completely illogical solution to this is the oldest daughter, played by Christina Applegate, having to get a job to support her family so they can have a fun summer? So she she forges a resume
0: so she can get a job. And the resume is... Well, to get a job within the fashion industry, because of course the always lucrative entry level job. Entry level, yeah, exactly.
1: Do you want to read some of the things on her forged resume?
0: yeah you might be surprised that we included this film but it is a more legit representation of the fashion industry more of the you know meat and potato side of the fashion industry it's she thinks she's working for a really cool fashion company but really what they do is design uniforms for nurses waiters what have you
1: yeah and she's managing like sales reports and like data entry and not fun not glamorous aspects of the fashion industry let's just say
0: she's basically a production manager even though she is the her boss's executive assistant, which you know who her boss is, right? Who? That's the mom from Six Feet Under. That's Brenda's Brenda's mom. What? I didn't
1: know that. And I also didn't know that David Duchovny was her colleague that's like trying to get
0: her fired until I just looked at the IMDb description. I know. So Christina Applegate is trying to get a, a secretary job, but through a whole switcheroo, the boss of the company sees her and is like, oh, I like you more than the actual secretary. And look at your resume which she copies from a resume book. And such work experience includes design assistant at Comme des Garcons in 1979. Wow, she was really on the ground floor of some historically significant shit. An assistant fashion coordinator at Bloomingdale's, a design assistant at Barney's, a New York design assistant in Calvin Klein. This film takes place- what is she, like 50? Like, I don't- Yeah, she lies and says she's 28. Um, Also, this film takes place in Los Angeles, which- you know has a relatively thriving especially in the in the 90s um garment industry that is very rarely ever shown in film that's why i wanted to include it and also it includes a fashion show but i think the most insane credit is that she worked for vogue although to be fair it says i'm looking yeah, at yeah she was an intern right yeah it's a summer yeah, internship it's a summer internship and also it says she went to vassar and then went to fit it seems like the wrong order but so the film is directed by Stephen Herrick, who directed Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The costume designer is Carol Ramsey, who did the costumes for the Abel Farrar film, King of New York. Highly hmm. recommend if you've never seen it. And the OG Ryan Murphy TV show, Popular. Oh. And our film. That, that's the one with Busy Phillips.
1: No, no, no. She was on Dawson's Creek. Who no, it's was the, the one on- with Leslie Bibb. Oh, you know what? Who was on Popular? Melissa Etheridge's, like... Yeah, lesbian girlfriend. Yes,
0: she was unpopular, and then she also did the costumes for our fave, Bad Boys Two.
1: Oh yeah, Bad Boys Two is so good. God, the part where it's a car chase, but there's like a morgue oh, van. There,
0: yes, there, there's that. Yeah, that connects to Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Yeah, because they're just like callously. <laughs> dropping corpses by the side of the road for comedic effect. There are a lot of buy-ins in this film, one of which is you can't just drop a body at a funeral park. First of all, the whole thing about burying people as two people who love Six Feet Under, speaking of Six Feet Under, (laughs) it's very expensive to bury a person. Yeah. Wouldn't they check dental records? I would think so. And then second, if she's working this job, she either forges a social security number because she's getting a W two, right, <laughs> or using her real one that says she's seventeen. Yeah, whatever. There's,
1: there's a lot of there's a lot of things in in this movie that are just strange, like the sequence when the drag queens steal her car. <laughs> she's just like going about her business, and then like a Marilyn Monroe impersonator. Speaking of which, how's your neighbor? No updates. <laughs> Okay, so a Marilyn Monroe impersonator not to be confused with Lauren's influencer neighbor and Liza Minnelli steal the car. And it's just like so funny. I mean, I guess that John Waters' films did set a precedent for films where drag queens commit crimes and maybe like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that led people to believe that this is just like normal behavior is for happening
0: your, for your average drag queen. Talk about the next door thread I long for. <laughs> The main thrust of the film is that they, Christina Applegate and all her siblings learn how to be decent human beings because they're left to their own devices. But the secondary plot is the uniform division of this company isn't doing well because they design uniforms and they're lame. So like a Project Runway... Challenge. Yeah. In the third act, Christina Applegate has the genius idea to redesign all of these uniforms and basically just make them neon. They're so insane. Like
1: this fashion show was crazier than I remembered. The pink fuchsia spandex harlequin nurse? nurse outfit.
0: For those who haven't seen the film, just imagine American apparel circa 2009, but as uniforms for a nurse, a chef. The
1: Har- Yeah, but it's all like the harlequin chef. The chef that also looks like a court gesture (laughs) gesture for when you need to do both. And everyone has a tiny hat. Yeah, it's like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure that teen girls don't want to dress like bellhops. What?
0: (laughs) (laughs) The like sassy teen bellhop outfits. Loved it. Well, that's the true. That would have been the the better ending to this film. So, well, I don't know if I should boil it. Who cares? The mom comes home. No one cares. No one cares. You've had literally like...
1: How many years to watch Don't Tell Mom, The the Babysitter's Dead. I'm not apologizing
0: for spoiling the ending. Sorry, The Babysitter's Dead, guys. I hate to break it to you. (laughs) So the mom comes home, figures out what what happened, but isn't mad because the house is clean now. So she's like, well, whatever happened, happened. And then Christina Applegate's boss, played by Brenda, the woman who plays Brenda Brenda Cooper from uh, Six Feet Under. Brenda Chenoweth's mom. Sorry, sorry, Chenoweth. Mom and Six Feet Under is like, I don't care that you're seventeen. The buyers loved it. You've saved the company. Come in on Monday. And she's like, Oh I'm sorry, I
1: can't. I'm gonna be a teenager again.
0: <laughs> Bitch, I'm going to school. It's retro- like you
1: fucking idiot. Like you don't need to go to school for this shit. What you're gonna go to school
0: to be a fashion designer when you literally already are one. As two people who went to Parsons School of Design, we were recently discussing, in retrospect, what we would have done. And I think what I would have done is go to Parsons at night, get enough credits to qualify as a student, and just have interned. Yeah. Because that's essentially how you're going to get ahead. At least, I mean, this is my mid-aughts perspective of going yeah, to fashion Yeah, no, school. look, I'm really...
1: I- I'm grateful that I went to that school, but well, we, I, think we that, I think that things have changed a lot now and there are different avenues. And I think that more people should just go out and get into the workforce as soon as possible or intern or assist or whatever it is. And
0: the reason I'm making the point that I'm making is usually, again, this is a mid-aughts perspective, but I th- still think it's this way, is that the only way that you can get an internship is to also be getting... Credit, which is an impossible feat when you're going to school full time. I never got credit for internships. No, no, no we just like did them. No, 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 no. The other way that the places, oh, they require you that to... you are getting school credit, like that you're actually assigned to a school. Look, if
1: you don't want to go to a big design school, but you want to break into the fashion industry, remember, all you have to do is just charm someone. You just have to make someone like you. You know, you just have to like ace the interview or like just. Convince like someone to get you in and you're in.
0: Or if you're me, just have someone in college look at you and go, you're sarcastic. Do you want to write for our website? And then <laughs> and then editors just start contacting you. Yeah. All right. So shall we transition
1: to a much darker film?
0: My description isn't as in depth, but I hope you'll enjoy it. Set in nineteen fifties London, the film follows a fastidious couturier played by Daniel Day Lewis with severe mommy issues, as he looks, for, <laughs> as he looks for the right mommy lover muse to inspire his work and upset his tummy. <laughs> I mean, oh. that is, is that
1: not phantom? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Nailed it. The mommy issues are severe.
0: Which I didn't even realize. So Chelsea and I saw this film together on Valentine's Day. <laughs> together. <laughs> so romantic. So romantic. We saw it at the Arclight RIP in 70mm as Paul Thomas Anderson wanted, who directed this film, also wrote the script. Who He says mm-hmm. that... He basically co-wrote the film with Daniel Day-Lewis, although he doesn't have a co-writing credit, and that the name for uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character, Reynolds Woodcock, started as a joke, and it made Daniel Day-Lewis laugh so much that they just kept (laughs) it.
1: Yeah, I'm obsessed with the House of Woodcock, personally. Um, (laughs) Would you you like
0: some more Woodcock?
1: (laughs) So yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis is much like um, Emma Thompson in Cruella, is that Christian Dior, Charles James type designer. Well, it's based on Cristobal Balenciaga. Yeah, Balenciaga, that that vibe, just classic Couturier. Uh, Monastic
0: life. Exactly.
1: No one is a more miserable person than Daniel Day-Lewis in this movie. He's a full workaholic. He has some form of OCD. He hates everyone. He all has the same looking girlfriends that he eventually gets tired of. That's one thing that's great about Phantom Thread is the casting, because I find with period films, this is set in the 1950s, it's jarring to have actresses, ingenues that you know have like fillers or plastic surgery or that kind of stuff. Like, are Their faces just look like the beauty standard for today and not for the time period. The beautiful thing about this movie is that it's so fucking legit
0: looking. Everyone looks correct. His mommy lover muse, as I said, is played by an actress named Vicki Cripps. Cripps? She's great. Who plays Alma. And then Leslie Manville, who was married to Gary Old- Oldman, plays Daniel Day-Lewis's sister.
1: She's the most major.
0: Yeah, you know that Daniel Day-Lewis has mommy issues
1: because he sews a lock of his mother's hair into all of his jackets, like
0: inside the lining. Right, which I'm sure Paul Thomas Anderson probably got that idea from this apocryphal story about alexander mcqueen which alexander mcqueen got his start as an assistant on savile row and according to him he sewed the phrase i am a cunt into prince charles suit which is so cool and i really hope that prince charles still has that suit But also, but the, well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to fuck you up, but when researching this, because I remember that story as well, but you can't forget that once you hear it. I know, but they went back and the the Savile Row people that he worked with were like, we went back into our archives and that's not true. But how would they they know? They would have to go in the lining. Yeah, exactly. Like they also
1: could be lined. Well, okay. But the other McQueenism is that for his first collection, his early collections, his label was a lock of hair inside a clear plastic that was sewn directly into the garment and that, that was a very Victorian sort of thing because back in the day it was normal to keep a lock of you know someone's hair in jewelry and also apparently I guess McQueen was inspired by sex workers back in the day would give like sell locks of their hair to their clients and stuff and it was a full thing so i love that in this
0: yeah and paul thomas anderson said that he got the idea for the film again reading a biography about Cristobal balenciaga and then also when he was sick and being taken care of by his partner maya rudolph <laughs> Think The thought
1: that Maya Rudolph is like the woman in Phantom Thread on some level is so insane to me.
0: Yeah, that he noticed one time when he was sick that his wife looked at him with a tenderness and affection that he had not seen from her in years, and that's what sort of set off this movie. So we're going to spoil... Again, guys you've had time to
1: watch this movie we are going to spoil the plot twist which is is truly stunning it's it's masterful and it's really rare that in any film like a, a an ending is so genuinely shocking but i feel like phantom thread
0: is truly shocking and to give context for those who have not seen the film and don't care that we're going to spoil it uh daniel day lewis exerts control in all forms of his life, including his lovers. He meets this woman, Alma. She moves in with him, becomes his muse, his model his girlfriend slash fit model. <laughs> And she basically uh, poisons him. Yeah, and the audience knows
1: that she's poisoning him with mushrooms and she's like reading in her little special books about poisonous mushrooms and figuring out how to poison him. and
0: and the day after she poisons him and takes care of him he marries her after a lifehood of being a confirmed bachelor. So the film is driving to this point. I remember you and I were sitting in the theater and, okay, it's Paul Thomas Anderson. I love him. Like, she's not gonna kill him. Like, that would be too obvious is he gonna kill her that's not a satisfying ending like how is this gonna end
1: and what the ending actually is is the audience realizes that Daniel Day-Lewis is fully aware of the fact that he's been being poisoned and instead of you know instead of getting revenge on Alma for poisoning him it's something that he wants to continue. Like he wants to be the sub in this Dom sub relationship where Alma is like poisoning him with mushrooms, then like nursing him back to help. Then he can like design some dresses and get some work done. And then she poisons him again because that's the only way that he can stop working or he can feel comfortable not working or being able to rest. Giving or, up all control. And also allowing himself, allowing himself to
0: be cared for. It's profound, Do you think Michael Haneke was sitting in the theater watching Fandom Thread being like, fuck?
1: I think Michael Haneke was was impressed. Michael Haneke probably shot off an email the next day being like, love what you did with that. But if you ever cast Isabel Huppert in a film, I will kill you. (laughs) But I kind of relate to that because I enjoy, look... Okay. I want to acknowledge my able-bodied privilege first and foremost, but I want to say that I do enjoy minor illnesses like colds, like when I got the second COVID vaccine, had bitch, a fever.
0: The amount of anticipatory excitement you had for not feeling well after the COVID shot or second dose, unparalleled. I am Daniel Day Lewis. That's why, because being sick allows you
1: to disconnect. You don't have to feel guilty about not responding to an email
0: right away. like You know, that's true, because we were supposed to record this podcast, but you got food poisoning before we did. Wait, when? No, I'm kidding. I'm I'm (laughs) pretending as if Tad has been
1: slowly poisoning you. Tad's been poisoning me with mushrooms. Oh my God, you
0: want to know Tad's review for Phantom Thread? (laughs) Oh, Tatiana's worst fear is people vomiting. Right. Is this what this is? Okay. Okay,
1: well, okay, so I forced... Tat to watch phantom thread with me and my parents and you know i was like okay i know she's going to hate this but if she's forced to watch the entire film maybe she'll appreciate it because i've had that experience like being forced to watch certain movies in like film classes and i'm like oh this is so boring but by the time you get to the end you're just like sobbing and on the floor she did not have that experience she was like it's long, it's boring, and then at the end, it's nasty. <laughs> Again, because of the vomiting, because she has, what's it called? Um, oh, I don't know. She's got vomit phobia, basically. No, it's amenophobia? I think there's, I mean, there's a, there's a name for it. Um, yeah, she's, she has a phobia of mostly of people vomiting around her, which is, I never told you the story from our trip. So slight digression, but okay, so me and Tat were refueling on our trip. We go to this gas station. There's this crotchety old man that works at the gas station. He yells at Tat for trying to bring our puppy into the convenience (laughs) mart. He He later accuses me of trying to steal a 79 cent Diet Coke just because like the other shop boy forgot to ring me up. And he was like, did you pay for just ice? And I'm like, no, I paid for a fucking soda. What do you mean? Anyway, this man hates me. I go out, I'm talking to Tad about how evil the man is and potentially homophobic the man is. And then this car of like Gen Z people pulls up. This chick in Yeezys jumps out and just starts vomiting. And Tat's like, she starts freaking out. She starts sweating. She starts getting really flustered. She jumps in the car. She's like, we have to get out of here. We're, we have to get the <laughs> fuck out of here. So I jump in the car and we go and then we hear a noise. And we're like, oh, the hose, like... <laughs> The hose, the gas, gas, yes, was still attached and had fully like ripped out of the fueling thing. So then we just basically like are standing there, like yelling at each other, being like, which one of us has to go inside and tell the old man that already hates us.
0: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's the thing about Tad is someone who has a phobia of people vomiting in front of her. This is a woman that has. It's like it follows yeah. if you have uh, if you
1: have whatever this phobia is because like wherever I go with her, it's like there's people vomiting everywhere. Whereas normally, I guess I just wouldn't notice it anyway. Anyway, <laughs> she didn't like Phantom Thread. It it is slow moving. It's it's also not very plot based. It's. It's also the film that made Daniel Day-Lewis be like, peace, I'm out of this acting game. (laughs) It's true. That was it for him. He said that he decided to quit acting during the filming of Phantom Thread, which, I mean, way to go out on a high note.
0: This is literally a man who, for his role in Last of the Mohicans, became a frontier man, spent years living (laughs) with Native Americans. He learned how to build canoes, track and skin animals, and reload a flintlock rifle while running. Also, for the but did he learn how to cut on the bias? (laughs) And that's the other thing is he, in preparation for this watch archival footage of 1940s, 1950s fashion shows, he learned to sew, and he basically recreated a Balenciaga dress on his wife Rebecca Miller.
1: So cool! It's such a good movie. I just like it. I hadn't seen it since we saw it in the theater, and it really just like affirmed my love for it. And run out and stream Phantom Thread. And the question
0: is, how much would you pay for a House of Woodcock
1: dress? (laughs) So much. The best part is the part where he's dressing a socialite that's like a raging alcoholic. And she's, you know, out at some party passing out in public in the gown. And Alma gets so pissed. And this is, I think, when Daniel Day-Lewis falls in love with her and, and she's like, she doesn't deserve it. So she goes and like into her hotel room after the party and like rips it off of her body after she's passed out. It's nuts.
0: Yeah, that's actually based on a real thing. Is it? Yeah, it's based on a Dominican Playboy's marriage to the Woolworth heiress Barbara Hutton. Mm-hmm. Which, when rewatching the film, I can—I comp- must have blacked that part out. I have no recollection of that. You should—you have to drop in the audio here. It's no business of ours what Mrs. Rose decides to do with her life. That she can no longer behave like this and be dressed by the House of Woodcock.
1: And on that note, shall we get into a- another film about? BDSM that doesn't appear to be one on the outset. If you've ever watched the film Secretary but wanted it to be about a fashion designer, here you go. The bitter tears of Petra von Kant. We've actually had some debate about the the pronunciation of her name because we can't decide how it's we pronounced. can't decide. I think it's Kant. I always said can't because that's when she first the namesake character in this film first picks up the phone. She does say, my name is Petra von Kant. But then when you think of like the German it's that's Kant, I don't know. Either way, Lauren and I are not the sort of people that should be pronouncing German names. Frankly, anything. So we apologize in advance for anything that is not correct. So The Bitter Tears of Petra Von Kahn is a movie about a neurotic fashion designer whose second marriage has recently ended. She has a long-suffering design assistant slash servant, I guess you want to call her. Um, Marlene,
0: who does not have a single
1: line in the film. Marlene is truly fucking ride or die. But then she meets this beautiful young woman named Corinne, who she falls in love with despite the fact that Corinne is obviously straight, is married, treats Petra like shit, etc., And then Corinne leaves her and Petra has one of the most iconic breakdowns in the history of cinema.
0: The end. The film is written and directed by Rainer Werner Fassbinder, who had recently become obsessed with Douglas Cirque films. And so he wanted to do work that had a more intense emotional register. He actually wrote this script in a single 12-hour flight from Berlin to Los Angeles. Isn't that a nightmare,
1: just knowing that? (laughs) Like... (laughs) And if that makes you feel like uh, if you're if you're a writer and that makes you feel like shit about your uh, your
0: work ethic
1: and your work ethic. This man also made 40 films before he died at the uh, very young age of 37. And a huge part of the reason why he was able to work so much and putting it put in the hours and was so prolific was that he was addicted to coke and also addicted to pills and that's ultimately what killed him but he left behind a truly incredible body of work and uh i think this is one of his most special movies and one that's always held a, a special place in my heart
0: well that would explain how this movie was shot only shot in 10 days yeah It does take place all in one room. This is a film that, a room that is like Petra's bedroom slash studio. Yeah, this film is an outlier from all the other films we've talked about today because it doesn't feature an actual fashion show.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't show any glamorous aspects of the industry. We don't even ever get to see a dress that she's like, oh, I designed that. We assume that the gowns that she's wearing she has designed, but we don't really have a sense of her body of work or her level of fame or, or
0: any of that. What's interesting is the credited costume designer Maya Limke. This is her only credit and you cannot find any other information about her. The
1: costumes are incredible. Like, of all the films that we've talked about, these are my favorite. It's... And they're very... Petra's looks are quite varied from one scene to the next. She doesn't wear a ton of clothes. I think there's, like... She maybe has, like, five outfits throughout the course of the film, but they're... They're the most glamorous bedroom looks you've ever seen. Well, that's the funny... That's the funniest thing about it is that this bitch wears gowns when she's just, like, hanging out in her house. Like, there's no reason for her to be dressed like this. And I love it, like... When she first meets... uh, Kareem. Kareem, who's played by Hannah Shigola. She, another Fassbender muse we haven't mentioned, but Petra von Kant is played by Margaret Karstensen, who was in like 10,000... They've both been in 10,000 of his movies. Like... These women to Fassbender are what Jessica Lang and Sarah Paulson are to Ryan Murphy, just for context.
0: And also, it's this sort of older woman, younger woman dynamic, but there's only like a four year age difference between the two of them.
1: Yeah, but the funniest thing is when Petra's like first meets Corinne and she's like, come over to my house tomorrow. We're going to talk about like making you a supermodel. When she comes over, It's like, they're both in full gowns. Like, they both could be going to the Oscars in this outfit, but they're just hanging out in Petra's
0: insane apartment. And another reason we've included this film on our list is, I think out of any film that we've talked about, it's kind of the most referenced in actual fashion shows.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a beloved film among fashion designers. I mean, that's an understatement. And it's not just because it's about a fashion designer. It's because it is insanely glamorous and... The first thing that came to mind when I thought about clothes that were inspired by this film was Tom Ford's collection for Yves Saint Laurent from Fall 2003, which had a a very literal recreation of the
0: the last look, the yeah, the, the green chiffon tier, tiered
1: yeah. ruffled dress with, and she's wearing this um,
0: this red rosette chiffon choker which is very carrie bradshaw i was gonna actually. say do you think patricia field was inspired <laughs> by this film to put carrie in the in the floral brooches all through season three well apparently the brooches were an sjp thing right
1: like she was the one that brought that to the table She's the one that's obsessed with that shit maybe sjp is obsessed with bitter tears That show had like very literal references to the costumes and the color palette, whereas Prada's collection from fall 2014 had a much more abstract interpretation of the film, which was like they took certain elements from the clothes. Like at some point during Petra's nervous breakdown, her daughter comes And she's wearing like a chevron like sweater sweater and like there's kind of iterations of that in the Prada show. But it's more like it's more like they took more colors and like there's all these shaggy furs that are kind of like the shaggy carpet in her bedroom. It's very deconstructed. Yeah, it's a very Prada interpretation. Very Prada. It's very cool, though. I mean, both of these shows are fantastic. It's yeah, it's a it's a real fashion classic. Apart from the clothes, this movie looks amazing. It's absolutely beautiful. The set is beautiful. The cinematography is unbelievable because the cinematography is by Michael Bauhaus, who did all of Fassbender's best movies later was brought into the fold by Martin Scorsese and did Goodfellas and that famous tracking shot and like
0: at the Copacabana. Yeah. In, in
1: just Goodfellas. like is a, is a literal genius who also did, you know, working girl postcards from the edge. Like literally like this guy
0: has done like every movie that we love, but Petrovan can Kant is just masterful and, and I, beautiful. And I think the, the reason that that is the case, I was watching a criterion interview with him He talks about the fact that Fassbinder, because he was obsessed with Douglas Sirk films, wanted it to have this lush old Hollywood 1950s film look, but then you compress it in because the film takes place in one location. I think the tension between those two things is what makes it so special. Totally. Well, and it also, it looks like a fashion photograph. Like you could take
1: stills of this and it looks like it could be in a magazine. It's also like the the women are staggered with the frame in a very stylized, specific way that does kind of resemble fashion photography. It's, yeah, it's, it's truly stunning to look at. But the apartment is fucking crazy. I was thinking like we were talking or we started to get into this a little bit on um, last week's episode about how the tale of... The Bitter Tears of Petra Von Kant reminds us very much of Caitlyn Jenner and Sophia Hutchins' relationship. Oof. So I was thinking like, <laughs> when I was watching this last night, I was like, oh my God, this is Caitlyn. This is Sophia. And the mannequins that are like littered all over Petra's apartment, those are the Kris Jenner mannequins. Yes. <laughs> from her 65th birthday present.
0: That's what Bitter Tears is missing is a whole diatribe of Petra being like, do you know how fucking expensive these are? (laughs) That's a great scene at the end of the film where Petra's mother comes in because it's her birthday and is forced to understand that her daughter is a lesbian and she can't comprehend it. And then she looks over and two female mannequins are naked on top (laughs) of each other. And like, that's when it like breaks. The light bulb goes (laughs) off in her head. It's so campy. It's so campy.
1: It's, yeah, this this movie really does encapsulate like really toxic lesbian, straight girl dynamic. Also to anyone who wants to make an argument that Corinne, her love interest is bisexual. This is not the representation that you want. <laughs> like this woman is a full grifter that is only with her for the brief economic security and the possible like fame and money that would come with being a model like she's a nasty
0: straight girl in my opinion she's a she's a sexual scammer yeah she is speaking as a as a straight girl we don't claim her <laughs> No one one wants to claim her. But she is fabulous and it's it's an incredible performance, truly. And we both love this film and, you know, you're a lesbian and I'm a straight girl and I'm so thankful that our dynamic is not representative (laughs) or that film is not representative of our dynamic.
1: Just wait until I start buying mannequins on eBay and like assembling them (laughs) in scissoring positions throughout your house.
0: (laughs) I think there's only one question left to ask, which is... Does fashion make you crazy? I mean, based on Phantom Thread and Petra von Kant, it's like you—you you would
1: say yes, it does. I don't know. Or create, does it attract crazy people? I think that's what it is. Because obviously, we can. Point to these very specific real life people like Loren Scott or or Alexander McQueen that were brilliant geniuses and also very troubled. Or, or John Galliano. Galliano, or who we've mentioned, I believe on the podcast before, whatever, the, des- the ball man designer that had a nervous breakdown, that guy. Okay, but I attribute that for charging $5,000 for jeans, okay? And you cannot <laughs>
0: convince me otherwise.
1: <laughs> I think any creative industry is going to attract crazy people. I think it is what it is. Or are we crazy to love fashion? I don't think we're crazy. I think you just love what you love, but- Love is love is love. Love is, as, as Lynn manuel Miranda said. You know I was actually at that Tony's when he said that? The well, love is love is love. And you know who else hosted that Tony's? James Corden, <laughs> my
0: nemesis. Your version, if Tat's version of it follows, is people vomiting. Vomiting, mine is James Corden. No, fully. It is. It is. Anyway. Oh, God. But would we even know that we're crazy because we both love fashion? So we don't think it's crazy and we reflect that back to each other. Yeah, exactly. I think it's fabulous. Fuck it. Who cares?
1: I, I'll die I'll die on this hill. I will be, I will be Petra in my, my full Tom Ford outfit, screaming and drinking hard liquor out
0: of a bottle on my shag carpet. Like, I'm down. It's cool. For your birthday, I, of course, will bring a baby doll for some reason. <laughs> if you haven't seen that film, that reference will mean nothing to you. But for those who know what I'm talking about, that's for you guys.
1: <laughs> this has been fun. This has been super fun. We should do this again. Yeah. Or should we? I mean, you
0: guys tell us. Yeah, please DM us suggestions for for episodes. If you want us to do a whole episode about a particular film or designers or models or anything we listed above, maybe a whole episode about actual fashion designers who have done costumes like Jean-Paul Gaultier for Fifth Element, Michael Kors for Thomas Crown Affair. I'm down. Let us know. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Rate, review, <laughs> like, subscribe, <laughs> guys. We're trying to figure out what our catchphrase is as, as an outro.
1: We're working. Oh, that's a- the other thing. Does anyone have any suggestions? Because I want a catchphrase. I to- I told this to Lauren earlier this week. I was like, we should have a catchphrase for and the I- end of the podcast. And I told her that's not how catchphrases work. We just have to organically think of them. But it's something like, "You're a bitch. I'm a bitch." <laughs> We're bitches, and you guys are all bitches, and we'll see you bitches next week. Okay,
0: <laughs> okay, wait, okay, not that, but hold on, if ho- anyone, <laughs> hold on, a live, uh, a live rewriting. Here's a, here's a picture into the process. You're a bitch, I'm a bitch, and we're all bitches together. All right, let's bitch together next week. Bye, bye, sluts. <laughs> it's Pride Week. Bye, you gay,
1: GLBTIAQI, whores. Peace.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no that's not it as as grimes would say that's not a vibe it's my vibe all right we love you guys
1: love you so much thanks for listening to us and uh we'll we'll see you later Bye. bye